You remember what I mentioned back in Balance of Terror? How it's really nice to be reaffirmed when, you know, there's something you like and then you analyze it and then it's like, yeah, it's even better. This is not one of those situations, unfortunately. If you asked me prior to doing this run-through of my favorite episodes list, this would be, Conscience of the King, would be one of my personal favorites. It's still a good episode. I still enjoy it quite a bit. But the seams showed a lot more than I remembered once I sat down and actually analyzed it. Uh, this is, uh... Let's actually start with one last thing. This is probably the last time I'm going to bring up Grace Whitney and, you know, Yeoman Rand. Because this is her final episode. You'll notice she basically has no dialogue here and just shows up for a couple of shots. And then she leaves. She was actually informed before she started filming this that she was axed. And in my opinion, you can kind of see that in her body posture and the way she moves and interacts with the people around her on the scene. This is also, according to her, it's the first and only time that she actually showed up on set with a thing of alcohol because this hit her like a ton of bricks. Remember how much she was dedicated to making this work? And I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So this is a job she really wanted that she has now lost. Cute. If you want to learn more, I wrote down the name of the book, uh, which I actually have read before, although I did not have a physical copy here, because I forgot to ask my mom to send me this one, too. I should have asked. I, I should have just asked her to send me all the Star Trek stuff, but at that point it would be a box and like $100 shipping. Uh, the Longest Trek, My Tour of the Galaxy, is her book, and if you want to hear, hear more about her and how she did that, it's worth noting that as much as I've been talking, you know, it, it, not negatively, but, you know, tragically, what happened to her, it is worth noting she did actually turn her life around and make something of it, and that's awesome. Not everyone manages that. Not everyone gets that chance. So good on her. I really hope, I don't know, but I really hope she felt embraced by the fan base like several other actresses whose lives were kind of wrecked by Star Trek, like Majel Barrett. I don't actually know. I never got to meet Miss Whitney. Um, that was never something that I was, uh, that I ever got to do, so. <sighs> Barry uh, Trivers, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, is the person who wrote this. It's the only episode he wrote. And Gerd Oswald directed this, and this is one of two episodes he directed. I just keep pointing this out. Just yesterday, I was chatting with a friend, uh, because they were bringing up how weird it was, how the show kind of just bounced around in pseudo-continuity land, but also was constantly swapping in actors and, and directors, and I'm like, well, okay. And I uh, mentioned to them that my, my research into this has, has uncovered the idea that they just kept cycling in new people. Near as I can tell, this is something that they were doing because of the unique way they were producing stuff. The fact that while I am going in production order, most of the episodes I have discussed, even up to and including this one, were all being filmed and, and made within just a couple of months of each other. Basically, doing what I do right now in real life. I sit down and I produce all my content in one giant chunk for the YouTube side of things. And then the post and the editing and that happens kind of, you know, afterwards and then it goes live you know, a year later. So it's kind of kind of a similar thing. Um, but I feel like that's one of the reasons why they cycled people in so much. Who's in? Who's on the set? Who's in the studio today? Ah, you. Could, could you come do this? This will actually be even more relevant when we get to season two. But again, that's going to be a ways off. So let's just go ahead and talk about the really, 
weird fact that this episode was really badly received when it went live. In fact, this episode did not actually get uh, rebroadcast for quite a bit because it was considered, and I quote, too talky. Now, <laughs> you, you, can, you can say whatever you want about that one. I obviously disagree. I do still like this episode. It's just not as good as I remembered. But I, I just want to mention something that amuses me. Obviously, Ronald D. Moore uh, really likes this episode. He, in fact, uh, used this as in several ways of inspiration for when he started writing for Star Trek. But the other one that amuses me is Matt Groening, the guy behind Simpsons and Futurama. He liked this episode, too. You're probably thinking, oh, as if he counts. I'm sorry, Groening could do good writing when he actually tries. It's just he doesn't always do so. And all I have to say, by the way, if you want to know how deep his uh, fondness of this episode goes, is Kang and Kodos. So then we have a really weird cold open into the episode proper. And some music which just kind of feels strangely out of place. It's like, here's this play, and then, I swear, that's Kodos the Executioner. Okay. So, this guy lured Kirk over here under false auspices. Hey, I've come up with this new synthetic food, which will totally be able to help this other colony. Don't you already use synthetic food? Like, isn't that what those food cubes are? I mean, it's not been stated explicitly, but I'm just wondering why the Federation has issues producing food. I mean, I, I suppose I could also point out the fact that as going far back as, say, Enterprise, which I know, I know I'm not supposed to count, they already had the way to restructure stuff into food, but, okay, whatever, let's just move on. They also have an Arboretum on board. Like, you can't tell me that, whatever, let's move on, let's move on. So then... Then we get uh, the worst scene in the episode. No, I'm serious. It's when Kirk meets with Tom, and what happens is bad screenwriting, like 101. There's a lot of as you know. There's a lot of really clunky exposition in addition to the as you know. And no nobody actually acts like a human being around each other. In fact, they seem to be talking at, like talking out the script. You know that thing when two people are, are talking to each other? but nothing they say lines up, so it's just like two parallel conversations going at the same time. It's kind of that. This also is when we find out that only eight or nine people saw Kodos, which is stupid, amongst a people. I know what you're thinking. Well, it's only eight or nine amongst the 4,000. Yeah, a governor of a town, let's call it what it is, of 8,000 people, and of the 4,000 remaining, only eight or nine ever met the guy? That's nonsense. I literally know more people than that in my apartment complex, and I'm not exactly going out every day, you know? <sighs> sure. Then we find out... Uh, he he goes up to the ship after this... I'm sorry, I, I, I guess I want to dissect this scene a little bit more. It's just, it's so bad. I don't know what to say other than... He repeats information Kirk already knows, which itself is a stupid premise, and then Kirk repeats information that he already knows, which itself is a stupid premise, and then Kirk's like, fine, whatever, I gotta go. Now, the episode does start to pick up a little bit, because Kirk goes back up to the ship and gets the exact same exposition from the computer, which irritates the crap out of me. I'm sorry, it's just, you are literally doubling down on exposition. You could have axed the Tom scene or done it differently and then had the exposition here. We don't even find out about what exactly he did until much later in the episode. That reveal is saved until Spock reveals it to McCoy. 
So it's not like you can't do proper revelation of past events. It's just you decide to double down. By the way, this is not the last time they double down on the same bit of exposition. Anyways, that being said, as much as this is irritating, what it does do is it establishes something very important. This is a Kirk episode. Very, very, very much a Kirk episode. And he has not let go at all. And that's the point. The fact that he has not reached a point where he is comfortable with moving on. Because he hasn't. Because it's still there and it's still haunting him. That's why he's looking into it. And that's why he decides to go after the Brendel Star and make sure to, you know, get them on board and blah, 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 blah. A couple tidbits here. First of all, they have a photograph of Kodos. Why do they need eyewitnesses? Like, it's it's a huge plot point that they need eyewitnesses. Not only do they have a photograph of the guy, they have a voice record to match him or later. Why do they need witnesses? So that's two times that's stupid. So, he heads down goes to this party, starts flirting with What's-Her-Face. Um, do you think... I know what the episode says. Do you think Kirk was fishing for information or actually flirting with her? Or both. They're not mutually exclusive. Now, the reason I kind of prefaced that was if you're paying attention to the episode proper, you'll notice that Kirk says it was one than the other. Originally, I was just using you to get to your father. But then, I truly fell for you, and you're so amazing. And then there's that bit with McCoy at the end. I don't buy it for a second. Ignoring the fact that there's nothing really engaging or interesting about her, to be completely blunt, other than her appearance, there's also the fact that this lady is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Now, I'm not going to get into that, because that's a whole other conversation. But the point is, no. But, as ever, I am curious of your thoughts and what you have to say about it. So he flirts, they go out to the garden, a.k.a. the usual exterior soundstage that they always use. <gasps> Tom's dead! No! No! I'm super shocked by this. We'll never see his weird face thing again. Kirk goes back up to the ship, and it, it, this, this is a really weird part. I, I just keep pointing out nits and problems with the first half of the episode, because the next thing that happens is she beams on board. She doesn't ask to be beamed on board. She doesn't schedule it. She's just there. Like she beamed up of her own of her own choice and volition. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why that shouldn't work that way. And then she goes to the bridge and he puts her through a song and dance to request that she basically make her beg him and also barter with him in order to be able to get the, the thing. Now that actually all lines up. Not because of any weird thing, but because of the fact that he wants to make sure that she doesn't realize he has arranged this circumstance. Then something interesting happens. Spock, is, is, he's, he's all smiles, he knows all that, until she leaves. The second she leaves, he then is much harsher, much more cold, and actually gets very close to the point of being outright rude to Spock. So... We get more repeated exposition, because whatever. Nine witnesses, yep, okay, that's nice, that's nice. Including Riley. Remember him? From the previous episode? I can't remember which one it is. This is his last episode, so I hope you like him here. Um, so Riley is transferred, and the captain's acting strangely. Credit to the episode, Spock then immediately takes this to McCoy. 
negative to the episode, McCoy acts like nothing's going on. In fact, McCoy is like, look, this is nothing. There's no issue here. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Non-stop up until he actually interacts with Kirk, and then he immediately flips his perspective there. Now, that does make sense. It's the fact that McCoy has now interacted with Kirk and knows him well enough to know that, okay, Spock's on the right call here. But the fact that he's so dismissive of Spock this whole time is, frankly, irritating. Also, apparently, the Vulcans were conquered because they never drank alcohol. Also, Vulcans are immune to alcohol. Sure. McCoy is weird through the whole scene. I, I don't even know what to make of it. We also see the observation deck. Hey, this is our very first mention of the fact that they have shuttles. So we now know shuttles exist. Good to know, I guess. I think Galileo 7 is the first time that's actually going to enter into the, the narrative. I'm not sure. Don't, don't quote me on that. So our first, first inclusion of shuttles. Yay! So we get the final bit of exposition because Spock has been looking into this. This is when things get interesting. Spock has successfully deduced everything happening up to this point. Good job in that. This is when the episode really starts to, to get a stride. We find out the final bits of the, of the information of what happened and why this is such a terrible thing. An unknown fungus came in and wiped out almost all of their food stores. They suddenly had very, very little food and everyone was going to starve to death horribly. He decided to take action and execute half of the population in order to make the food supplies last longer so that the supply ships could show up and save them. Now that's horrible. Pragmatic, but horrible. There's a niggle added in there. Eugenics. He selected the people who were more useful, more necessary for the survival of the colony, according to his own personal perspective on how eugenics work. You'll also notice this is the first time eugenics is mentioned in this show, and it is mentioned that eugenics has been a problem prior to now. Now, it's very likely they're actually referring to stuff like the, world, the, the relatively recent World War II stuff that was still in public consciousness when this episode went live. But with the advantage of hindsight, we can now see how this actually probably was referring to the so-called Superman and Khan's time, right? The eugenics wars. Interesting how this all lines up, mostly because of adapting after the fact. Anyways, so that's actually kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? From a purely coldly calculated pragmatic perspective, what Kodos did was correct. He selected the people who were most useful for the survival of the colony and killed the rest in order to spare them. Killed them quickly. They actually make a point of this. Killed them quickly and killed them without pain. So there's no cruelty here is what I'm trying to say. There's no malice. There's no malevolence. There's just someone who made a very, very harsh and horrible choice. Then the supply ships came back early. Ouch. This is one of the strengths of the episode. Not only the, the, the dilemma that was already faced, the dilemma of the past, and how Kodos dealt with that, but he, the, the actor, who we haven't even met yet, really, other than the cold open, he really sells just how much this has haunted him since then. How much this was such a horrible thing. He tries to defend himself, but every time he does so, there's that regret and grief, and it's clear that he does not actually stand by his own decision. Even though, again... It was correct, even if it was horrifically wrong. It has been mentioned that if the supply ships hadn't come back early, he might have been heralded as a hero. But of course they did, and history has made its judgment. 
So this then leads to uh, Riley. Riley nearly gets uh, killed. You know, he's like, oh my gosh. See, he's because he's been transferred to engineering. There's the food, food cube. It's always the food cubes. It's every freaking episode, it's the food cubes. But he's also got his thing of milk. And someone uses a spritzer bottle to poison. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, low budget, but come on. Can you imagine just carrying some poison around? Bad kitty, bad. Oh, shoot. Anyways, <clears throat> so... I'm sorry. So he, so Ura sings to him. This is actually kind of interesting. At first, I was irritated by the singing section. No offense to Nichelle Nichols. She's a good singer. It's just, it seems like an unnecessary point of the episode until I realized it was actually mandatory because it's the only reason Riley lives. It's nice to not see a redshirt killed for once, but again, the only reason he lived is because he had an active comm open to the rec room. And because of that, he was able to crowd for help. They were able to get there in time and save him. And they almost didn't, even with that. Nice little touch. It's not like the episode is incapable of subtlety. It's just it takes to the second half. Speaking of which, we are now officially at the second half of the episode. Kirk, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy have a big confrontation. And Kirk snaps at Spock. It's my business. It's my personal affairs. And it's funny because McCoy comes to Spock's defense. This is his job, and you know that. And Kirk... Pulls himself back for a second. It's like, you're right. But this is just supposition. And Spock's response is actually a great quote. And I, forgive me, but I love this quote. Captain, even in this corner of the galaxy, 2 plus 2 still equals 4. His logic is unassailable. Now, in fairness, logic, as I myself have, have said many times, is a route to a truth, not the route to the truth. Nevertheless, logic is an excellent baseline, and Spock's logic tracks very cleanly here. This is also, there's this wonderful bit. I need justice, and the people need justice. And then McCoy challenges him, are you sure? Are you sure you don't just mean vengeance? And Kirk responds, no, I'm I'm not sure. I don't actually know. Well, what if he is Kodos? Do you take off his head, charge it through the, the corridors? That's not going to bring back the dead? And Kirk's response, no. But it might help them rest easier. This is a really good scene. It's not even the best scene of the episode. You can see why I remember this episode so fondly, because from this point until the end is is just pure gold, basically. All my issues and complaints are with the former half of the episode and the premise, which is stupid, the 8 to 9 thing. That, that's just ridiculous. But as ever, cloud effect. Bad premise, good episode. So, you know, I'm kind of with this. Anyways, this then leads to the phaser going on overload. What's funny is Shadows of the Empire, a Star Wars book, actually covers this exact same concept. What if you have a structure which has a very damaging and, and very, very powerful bomb go off in the middle of it? <sighs> yeah, imagine someone setting off a thermal detonator in the middle of a Star Destroyer. Because that's effectively what is almost happens here, the, the phaser. Yeah. Very interesting way to try and kill someone, and would have succeeded if not for the fact that they had the disintegration tube to send it off. Or maybe it shuttered it out into space? I, I actually am not sure about that. Either way, it doesn't kill them. Good. 
But you'll notice this really pushes Kirk. Again, you'll notice... I, I actually have a note here really quick. I was going to say, this is the first time a phaser's been put to overload in the Star Trek. Nope, had to correct myself, and I scratched it out. This is actually the second time that happened in Star Trek history, because number one did it back in the cage. It was actually part of the final gambit there. Whether it counts or not is up to you, but this, as far as Star Trek history is concerned, this is still only the second time. Sorry for getting everyone's hopes up for absolutely no reason. Not that any of you actually care when I keep pointing out these firsts in Star Trek history. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who actually gives a damn about that. But moving on. This pushes Kirk. You notice each step has pushed Kirk a little bit harder, a little bit fiercer. And he has, and that's actually a very important part of his character because from this point onwards, he is getting driven past the point of reasonability. He charges into Kodos's room. You. Are you Kodos? I... Notice that 31 minutes and 50 seconds into a 44-minute episode, that's when Kodos finally shows up and enters the narrative. Thankfully, and you know I've said this before, Star Trek lives and breathes on its guest stars, and Arnold Moss does an excellent job of him. He only I'd say he only does two lines in the entire work, not good. And both of them are actually part of the Shakespearean stuff, not him playing, you know, Kodos. He, do, he nails it. The gravity and the strength of his performance just like I was talking with Alec Guinness a few episodes ago, that helps add the weight necessary. So like Mark Leonard, this is now the second episode I really love that is really en enhanced by the inclusion of a guest star whose weight of performance really adds to it. Huh, I wonder if that's... I, I don't actually know. I'm not memeing for once. I don't know if that's going to be a trend. It'll be interesting to see going forwards. Regardless, the confrontation scene is just gold. Um... He, he dodges all the questions, but when asked, you know, what were you 20 years ago? Younger. Much younger. He's, they've got his voice on file. Let's just ignore that. I've already made my complaint there. But then he starts reading from memory. And Kirk talks about tools, and they discuss decisions, and how it, how it is to make hard choices, and what it's like to have the human element versus the cold calculus. And of course, Kodos is the one to attack Kirk by insisting that he is someone who is an unthinking machine, that he's removed from the human element, when in fact that is the exact opposite of what's happening, because Kodos is actually accusing himself that he made the cold calculus choice, the correct choice, which was horrifically wrong. He distanced himself from that human element of himself and has been doing so for years, trying to push the past into a blank slate because of how much he regrets it and the weight of it which is still dragging him down 20 years later. And, of course, we see that it's hitting both Kirk and Riley and Tom in basically the same way. None of them ever recovered from this incident. None of the ones that we see ever recovered from this incident. And... <laughs> Kirk admits, trembling, that if he had his way, he would kill Keridan, Kodos, on the spot. He doesn't. He pushes himself back, but that very human need for vengeance, that is, well, awesome. McCoy then mentions Kodos openly in front of Riley. He doesn't know Riley's there, but it's a really dumb scene. And it's even weirder because there's that strange music choice again. What was it with the music in this episode? It's another ding mark on that. We, we do have another first. It's the first time we have a that's an order. Something I complain about extensively over on Voyager and Enterprise. 
at least here it makes sense. You know, you, you shoot that man, that's the end of your career. Give me the gun, that's an order. Okay, sure. This is a good time to mention something. The final confrontation, the final conflict, the final enemy is vengeance itself. And the, the, the tragedy of what happened. There's no big bad, I'm, you know what I mean, I'll get there in a second. There's no big bad in the strictest sense of the word. The climax is framed and presented as Kirk fighting his own need for vengeance, just like Riley is fighting his own need for vengeance. Both of them doing that and having to defeat that need for vengeance in order to try and not give in to that is the final boss of this encounter. And it's and it's a wonderful piece, and it, it's one of the reasons I love this episode is because, especially Shatner, who actually does a good job of acting this time around, really nails the perspective of someone who is fighting his own nature. Then we get the twist. If you're paying attention, the episode makes it clear at like the ten minute mark, I think it might actually be earlier than that, that Carradine is Kodos. It's really obvious very early on. So, that's not the mystery. There is actually a mystery in this episode, and that is who has been trying to kill people. Because there have, have been murders, and there have been, Tom did get killed, Riley nearly got killed, Shat, uh, Shatner, well, uh, Kirk and a whole lot of other people nearly got killed. People have actually been dying, so there is a mystery here. It's just, it faded into the background in the weight of the actual drama. This is when the final tragedy is unfolded. It was always her. I've barely talked about her, because for the most part, she has no presence in the story other than to be, you know, a, a love interest and also a vector by which he can use to go after him, right? Barbara Anderson plays her, and she does a pretty dull performance up until the finale when she admits it's okay, she's made everything go away now. And she does mad very well. In fact, I would go so far as to say that she does actually insane, just complete disconnect properly. There's this hor They actually do this effect where they zoom in and they have a special light shining in her eyes just to show how far gone she is. But I do want to give credit to the actress as well for doing a good job of that. She comes across as creepy. She would be a perfect Batman villain. You know what I mean? What's really funny is when she confesses all this to Kodos, this is the first time he's heard that too. He didn't know. And he is livid and revolted. Remember, Kodos was not an evil man. Not really. He was not malevolent. He was not malicious. He did not want to kill anybody. That was never a desire. Finding out that his own daughter, A, has now been sullied by the one thing, you know, the one thing he had left has now been sullied, and B, has been committing these horrible atrocities, visibly, just, just I, I'm going to go back to that earlier word, revulsions him. I know that's not how that word works. It, it brings up revulsion within him. He is just, ugh. And then the, the, the scowl of disdain. How could you do that? Then, of course, she shoots. Uh, she tries to kill Kirk, and she ends up killing her own dad. And then, bing! That's the end of that! She is now completely gone. Don't worry, though, says McCoy. She remembers nothing. She even thinks her dad is still performing. Ouch. That's messed up for two reasons, or one of two reasons, I should clarify. Either she has really lost it so far that she has basically pulled a Ducat, you know what I'm referencing, or, and this is even more horrifying, bzzz, 
Remember the whole neural reprogramming? Criminals made right? Yeah. And the episode ends. I think I would rate this one below Balance of Terror, having analyzed both. But I do still think this deserves to be considered one of my favorite episodes of TOS so far. I should start making a list like I've been doing with Enterprise. That's a good idea. I'll do that. Off camera. Don't worry, I won't bore you with typey typey noises. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. I'll see you next time.